Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. If you're new here, just know that we're so thankful that you chose to join us today. And if you've been listening for a long time, thank you for continuing to show up and for continuing to be a part of our community. Here at South Bend City Church, we like to call ourselves a community of grace and peace for the city and for the world. And before we get into today's teaching, I just wanted to keep a couple things in front of you as we seek to do just that. Each year, as a way of honoring God and the spirit of generosity in this specific season, we find extra ways to show up with generosity as a church. This year, there's two ways of doing that, giving to the Tribune Project, which if you don't know what the Tribune Project is, you can go to thetribuneproject.com for all the information, or you can go to previous episodes of the podcast, specifically our updates tag, to catch up on all of the information there. But another way we show up specifically in this winter season is by giving to the Christmas offering. The Christmas offering supports objectives for our church, for our city, and for the world. In the next few weeks, you'll hear more about the objectives in the city and the world, but today, I just wanted to remind you that part of the Christmas offering this year will help replenish our general fund, which has been drawn down over the past few months as we paid severance and helped with the transitions caused by budget cuts and staff reductions. And so your gift to the Christmas offering will in part help us maintain financial health as a community, supporting all of the work that happens in our day-to-day life as a church. Sunday gatherings in person for adults and for kids, table groups, student tables, podcasts and other online resources, and city engagement here in South Bend City Church. So you can designate gifts for both the Tribune Project and for the Christmas offering by going to southbendcitychurch.com slash give, which is in the show notes below. And you can select the appropriate fund. I believe Christmas offering is actually Christmas 2020. You've got the Tribune Project. As always, you can continue to give to the general fund. And also there's other funds there that you can check out as well. We're so thankful for the ways that your generosity allows us to exist as a community together and to be truly a place of grace and peace for the city and for the world. Well, this week we are in week two of Advent. We lit the candle of peace and you can hear that liturgy on Thursday. But we're going to continue to follow the four themes of Advent all the way up until Christmas. And while we are here, I just wanted to let you know about our bird's eye view calendar for the next few weeks. Next week is the theme of joy. What better way to experience the theme of joy than through our kids joining the band on stage to sing? It's going to be so cute and fun. I practiced with them this weekend and they're so excited. If you're around the South Bend area, I hope that you and your families can make it. But they will also be included on the podcast next week. Then we've got Christmas Eve gatherings. We've got two gathering options, 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. Those are identical gatherings, but the 11 o'clock does not have nursery. The 4 p.m. does. And there will be fire at both, so just know that if you have kids older than nursery, they will be with you in the gathering, so maybe start your fire training now. Once again, we really hope that if you're in the area, you can join us as we spend our Christmas Eve together. And then Christmas Day and New Year's Day, we're off. We're not meeting as a community, not only because they're holidays, but because it honors our fields, not factories mantra. We believe that rest is integral to the rhythms of life and that that's true for us personally, but also for us as a community. So we're going to go dark. There's not going to be a podcast and there's not going to be gatherings. And we hope that those two days can serve as community with those that you love. Then we're back, kind of. We're not in person at Studebaker 112, but we will be doing pop-up brunch tables. 
Right now, we're looking for hosts. And so if you live in the South Bend area, Michiana, as we refer to it here, and you want to host a table, you can go to the link below in the show notes, or you can head to our website and scroll down to the What's Happening section of our homepage. Just so you know, you don't need to go crazy with the cleaning. You don't need to find an option or a babysitter or a dog sitter. You can host it at your favorite brunch place. Or for those that don't live in the area or maybe can't be here in person that week, we would love to host some online brunch tables. And so if you're interested in hosting one of those Zooms, please fill out the form as well and we will be in contact with further updates. All right, one more thing. We ended our gatherings this weekend in sharing in the Eucharist together. We approached the table together. And so go ahead and pause this really quick. Go ahead and grab some form of bread or cracker or juice or wine. And when we get to that point, I'll jump back on and lead us through that time. Just wanted to make sure that you had the time to get what you needed. All right, I think we made it through everything. This is week two of our Advent section of the Old Creed New World in which we spend four weeks exploring the implications of a God who locates God's self in the womb of a young woman. What if her experience isn't just something for us to revere from a distance, but a pattern for us to follow as we, too, allow God to bear God's life in us? Let's join the rest of our community now. A little later in our gathering, we'll come to a meal that we call the Eucharist, which really is a peace meal. It's a meal to celebrate peace with God and with one another, And uh, we'll say more about that as we lead up to it, but it's always helpful to clarify how we approach this table in in case you're new here and you're wondering. So first of all, when we get to that point in our gathering for the Eucharist, uh, this is for anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus, period, full stop. So we don't like make you take a doctrinal test before you come to the table. We don't even um, really worry that much about the week that you've had or whether you're proud of yourself today or not. It's just, do you want to be at the table with Jesus? If so, we would love to welcome you there. Uh, when that time comes later in the gathering, it'll be really obvious, and we'll explain it a little bit more. But then you'll be uh, welcome if you'd like to get up out of your seat and go to one of the tables here, here, and here, and we'll have somebody up in the mezzanine for you as well. When you get to the table, you can simply hold out a hand. You don't have to take anything at the table because Jesus freely gives. And when you hold out your hand, somebody will put a piece of bread in your hand. The bread is gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, and soy-free today. Uh, hopefully that means everybody is able to receive that. They'll remind you the body of Christ broken for you. Hold on to it for a moment. Step over. Somebody will hold out a cup, and they'll remind you the blood of Christ shed for you. Uh, It's grape juice in the cup, but you can take the bread and dip it, and then uh, take and eat that, and that'll be our practice uh, later. Uh, If you're not able to get out of of your seat and go to the table, we want to meet you where you are. So when we get to that point in the gathering, after the lines have sort of wrapped up at the table, if you just want to raise a hand, our servers will keep their heads on a lookout and look around the room, and they'll come to you in your seat to bring those to you if you can't make it to the table. That'll be our practice in a bit. Before we get there, though, a few other things to say, and I want to check in uh, with a quick little survey here. Um, You know, there are things that divide whole communities. There are sort of lines of conflict that are helpful to name sometimes just so that we can kind of talk about it together, right? And I think one of those that really sort of tears at the social fabric of this season for us is when you're supposed to decorate. (laughs) Is there anybody here who's like, we get the tree on Christmas Eve? Is there anybody at that end of the spectrum? Anybody? Yeah, a little bit. Be brave about this. Come on, own this. Yeah, okay. That's fair. Uh, how many have your Christmas decorations, whatever you are going to do, how many of you have them up right now? Yeah? Are a lot of you like Thanksgiving weekend people? Is that when you get that going on? Yeah? Yeah? After, wait, excuse me. It has to be at least the day after. Has to be at least the day after. Do you hear the dogmatic passion here? Yeah. What do you think? 
On Saturday. Okay, just this. The Saturday after Thanksgiving. Okay, very good. Is there anybody that goes way before Thanksgiving? Right here. Here. Okay, yes, that's right. Yeah, and here too. When, when did you do yours? Day after Halloween. Day after Halloween. Is that where you're at, Emerson? Yeah, okay. All right. Well, you all know that some of you are wrong, but I won't tell you who's wrong. I'm also checking in on this because I tend to wait like roughly 16 years. Which is to say that for the first time in my adult life, I have a Christmas tree at my home this year, and I'm kind of excited about it. There's a little background on this. Oh, thanks. So several years ago, uh, when I was like young and had just bought my first house coming out of college, my mom actually like found a tree for me. So she, she gave me a Christmas tree, which was really sweet, and I set that up. And then I came home one day to discover that my 90-pound golden retriever had eaten the tree. <laughs> actually eaten it. By the way, this was an artificial tree. Plastic and metal, just gone. Obviously, I spent the next few days keeping a very close eye on certain biological processes in the backyard to make sure that everything was moving smoothly, and apparently it was fine. But after that moment, like, I never got around to it again. And I, I'm the kind of person that like, loves and appreciates like, design and, and decorations and things that make spaces beautiful, but I have a really, really, really hard time committing to them myself, right? And so uh, I've like, been debating for three years whether I would put a tree in my current home and where I'd put it, and it's taken me three years in my current home to get to the point where I finally told my mom, I think I'm ready to commit. And she said, thank God, and I said, to a Christmas tree. And she said, oh. So, <laughs> so, so we went shopping the other day. She came along for moral support. We went through like seven stores and finally found the one and put it up there. And I was sitting at home kind of reflecting on this whole crucible that I've been through of committing to a Christmas tree. <laughs> it's like hard to think about spending the money on it. And it's hard, I don't know. I, I have my own complexes here. But I was sitting at home with the Christmas tree up next to my couch with the lights on at night. And reflecting on, there's actually a, a whole background here culturally and traditionally. Uh, it seems to be the case uh, that early Christians, as Christian faith moved out of the Middle East and up into Europe, especially Northern Europe, early Christians encountered cultures who had some sense that they should adorn the darkness of the winter season. Of course, you know, Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere happens during winter season, and there was some sense among uh, non-Christian cultures, among these people, that, that in the darkness it's fitting to put a little bit of light. And these Christians seem to have said, you know, we have a story about that, actually. We have a story to tell about that. So rather than just sort of wiping all that out, they sort of folded it in to their practice. And things like bringing a tree into the home and putting lights on it in the dead of winter seems to be a, a sort of like beautiful recognition that this story has been patterned in many ways in the world. And then these Christians said, we have, we have a name for that story and a, and a person at the heart of that story. And I was thinking about um, the power of a story that says that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. It's almost as if, whether it's the season of winter that makes things physically dark or whether it's the long seasons that feel dark in our lives, something about that darkness actually like dilates the eyes. And when the eyes are dilated, they're actually able to take in more light, right? So it's fitting that we would like, adorn the darkness and that we would light candles this season and that we would kind of use all of these sort of cultural layers to wrap our life ar around the story of God arriving, of God taking on, on flesh in the middle of a world that can sometimes be very dark. And we're, we're talking about it with candles and with, with Eucharist and the way that we'll celebrate Christmas Eve right around the corner. We're also uh, using uh, an ancient document that's, that we've been working through since September to help us think about the meaning 
of this season right now. The document I'm talking about is called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and let me remind you where it starts and where we've come to in this season. So this document, which helps us interpret our faith and make sense of it, begins, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And during this Advent season, we thought it would be appropriate to just spend some time here with these lines, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now that line from the Creed, it's not just like made up in the Creed. Uh, it's the Creed elevating a moment from Scripture, from the New Testament, from the very earliest stories that were told of Jesus. And I know for some of you, this is old hand. You've been hearing this your whole life. For others, this might be the first time that you've heard it. But I do want to quickly just visit the place in Scripture where this idea comes from. So this is the way that the Gospel of Luke tells this particular story. And by the way, some of our kids in kids' ministry are hearing a version of the same story today. So parents, you're going to look really smart at lunch. I'm going to tee you up to come on strong and to debrief the kids' ministry experience with your kids when they get out of it. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel of Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fall. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So that's kind of the epicenter of the story about uh, Mary uh, saying yes to this invitation for God to be conceived in her life. Now, uh, depending on your background in, in Christian tradition, you may be aware that like, Mary has prominently figured in a lot of uh, Christian spirituality over the centuries. And in, in the early development of thinking about like, Mary's role and what we can learn from Mary and the way that Mary inspires us, uh, a word was developed. This first gets used in the third century, uh, uh, mostly in like Syriac texts. The word in Greek is this, theotokos. And, uh, and then, in, and then in like fast forward to the 5th century in the Council of Ephesus, and as the church is trying to understand the very specific nature of Jesus as both God and human, they come to really embrace this idea of describing Mary. And the word translated into English could be mother of God, but you could also just say God-bearer. Mary, the bearer of God. Now, again, I know when you bring up Mary stuff, like there's all these fights and all these sort of like debates and judgments against like different streams of Christian tradition and devotion and there's lots of opinions there. I have no interest in critiquing um, my like sisters and brothers in different streams and how they've found Mary to be inspirational or helpful to them. But there's a Catholic priest named Ronald Rollheiser who's a, a theologian who I highly recommend. And Rollheiser is talking about what this idea does for us of Mary as the bearer of God. And Rollheiser says, Mary's not just an icon to be reverenced but the pattern for how the incarnation is to continue, for how God continues to take flesh in this world. Not just an icon to be reverenced, but a pattern to be imitated, 
a thing that might be repeated in our lives. As if to say that God still wants to bear flesh in the world. God still wants to live God's life in the world. God still wants to be brought into the world through willing vessels, through everyday people who say yes to that. And I had a, a recent reminder of how powerful that experience can be when you feel like you discover, you sense that in some way, maybe small, maybe big, maybe intimate, maybe public, some way that God is actually not just a part of your life, but being born in your life being carried in your flesh, working God's self out into the world through your life. It happened uh, at a meal. I was with a couple of friends over in New York City earlier this year. One of the friends lives there in New York. Dear friend of mine, and we were having dinner and kind of getting caught up. And, you know, like normal catch-up stuff, like work, relationships, church, faith, all that stuff. And we're talking over dinner. And then this friend of mine, who's usually quite good with words, in fact, he's a writer for a living, he starts to kind of like reach for words that are a little more... Um, just at the edge of his grasp as he's trying to describe an experience that he's been having over the last few months. And as he begins to reach for those words that are right at the edge of his grasp to describe this experience, he starts to get really emotional. I mean, like, he kind of turns into a mess at dinner, like a, like a, a blubbering, messy, tearful man telling the story and began to realize that these were tears of really intense joy. And what he was trying to describe was like, something's been happening in the last couple of months. It, it's, it's just like the switch got turned on or the, the faucet got opened up or like pick your metaphor. But I, I just like keep bumping into like God doing stuff, not just in me, but through me. I just keep finding that there's this thing that's kind of hard to explain where like for some reason in this season, something really beautiful and profound keeps happening where... I'm able to encourage people or help people or say things to people or be a conduit for something that feels bigger than me. And he's there just weeping over the joy of this experience. Now, the background of my friend that I think is part of the joy that he was feeling and the surprise that he was feeling is the friend of mine happens to be a gay man and not just a gay man, but also uh, he happens to be the son of a very prominent uh, nationally known religious leader. He also happened to be outed against his will years ago in a very public way. And I think that outing was um, really leveraged in the sort of culture war fights that are a part of American religion. And so I think in particular for him, after so many voices have come at him in so many ways and said, like, who you are makes you unworthy or unlikely to be the kind of person through whom God's going to do this thing. I think he just like, like couldn't contain the joy of the experience of discovering that, that God wanted to be doing something through his life pouring God's self into his life and through his life. And I was sitting there like sharing that meal with him, so incredibly moved and re remembering that like there is a part of us that I think is, is meant to live at that level. Now, it doesn't mean every day is going to feel like that. It doesn't mean every season is going to be like that. But there is a part of us, I think, that is not meant to be satisfied simply by increasing our purchase power or simply by like gaining another promotion at work. A part of us that's not gonna be satisfied through a little more stability and security. A, par a part of us that is meant for nothing less than the discovery that God is living God's life in you and through you. That God is pouring God's self into the world through you. That, that, that your life has become a conduit for the love and the presence of God in the world. And again, I'm not saying every day feels that way. I'm not saying you can manipulate that or make it happen. But I, th I think something's missing from our experience without that. And I think the joy he was expressing was for that part in him, for that, that yearning in him to somehow be connected to what was happening as these like little sort of everyday moments were stacking up to the experience of, of God actually bearing God's life in his life. 
And as I asked him a few more questions about that that night and in follow-up conversations, he would tell you that there have been some really important yeses that he had to offer. Moments of consent or surrender, of opening or vulnerability that sort of laid the groundwork for this to happen. And again, that doesn't mean you get to pull a lever and make it happen, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the more mysterious way that we find, we find our way towards saying yes. And that when we do, sometimes we discover that God has been interested in bearing God's life in us. Now, my friend, as far as I know, as far as I know, he did not actually have an angel visit him. Uh, in fact, I, I don't know anybody who's had that experience in such a direct or explicit way. And, and I don't know that you're going to like have Gabriel visit you tonight. Although if that happens, great, more power to you. Let us know what you learn. Uh, I think we often find these, these kinds of invitations. God's saying, I actually want to bear myself in your life. I want to channel myself into and through your life. There's other ways that the, the invitation comes, right? Sometimes it's simply a deep discontent inside. Like a deep knowing that things are not the way they should be, either in your life or your family or your neighborhood or your community or your world, that, that burning inside. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it kind of gnaws at you like an ache. Sometimes it screams in you or it burns in your bones. There's something about the status quo that God is not content with and we shouldn't be content with it either. Sometimes that's how the angel comes and speaks to you, right? Sometimes it's through practice of prayer. And by prayer, I don't mean that you need to, you know, perform dramatic acts of prayer and heroic efforts of devotion. I just mean developing in our lives a pattern of becoming present to God in some sense. Moments of intention, moments of paying attention, moments of quiet presence, that often like that practice can over time help us become the kind of people who hear these invitations, right? Uh, other times I've found in my own life or learning from others, that it's time spent with the Jesus that's described in the Gospels, these stories that actually tell the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that time spent with Jesus begins to reshape your imagination for a different kind of life or a different kind of future, that time spent with Jesus in the Gospels begins to help you sense how God might want to bear God's self in your life. And like, you kind of spend time in that space enough, and you begin to develop a new imagination for your life, and it might be calling you to a new yes to a posture of consent and vulnerability towards something new. I, I don't know how the angel will like, speak to you or say God wants to bear God's self in your life, but I do think it happens still. I don't think Rollheiser is wrong. And I think there are reasons that we are really inclined to avoid it. Uh, one thing I love uh, about the way that these stories are told is they don't just speak of like, the joy of God showing up in Mary's life or the power of Christ being born. They speak of the vulnerability involved and the disruptions that happen for anybody who wants to say yes to bearing God in their life. And these disruptions, I want to name them because if these are what keep us from saying yes, I both understand it and yet it's a tragic miss. Uh, let's talk about the disruptions. The first one that I'm not going to say a lot about from Mary's experience, which will be clear in a minute why, uh, is the actual disruption of her physical body, right? Good news. Next week, I got Mallory Wyckoff preaching. She's going to talk at length about that. But I didn't want to be the dude preacher who pretends to know much about that experience. But it's very clear that like, Mary's body is, is profoundly involved in this disruption. And I, I don't know that that particular sort of disruption that comes with the conceiving and bearing of a child will be the way that your body is involved. But it's often like the unnamed, unspoken thing that our bodies are involved in saying yes. The actual sort of physical flesh and blood that each of us walks around in. Sometimes our bodies 
are an important part of saying yes and we don't even realize it. It might be because your body is carrying some trauma or some fear triggers. And for you to say yes is, is going to confront some of those traumas or fear triggers. Those are in the body and you might have to deal with some of that stuff, right? It might mean physically putting yourself in different places. And to carry your body into different places uh, is its own kind of disruption. So the body might be a part of it. You'll hear more about that from Mallory next week. I'm really excited for you to learn from her. Um, it might be um, your plans. I mean, Joseph and Mary had a plan for their life, right? They were going to run the cultural playbook of marriage for them, and they were going to play all that out. I've walked with a lot of couples into marriage, and one thing I know is that marriage for so many people is the fixation of so many plans, not just the day that they meet the person they're going to marry, but years before that, as you develop a kind of vision for the future that you hope to have. Like for so many, marriage is, is central to that picture, central to those plans. And this, of course, blows all those plans out of the water, changes all of their timelines, really threatens that whole plan. Maybe for you, the disruption that comes with saying yes is that your vision of the future, you have to kind of let it be reshuffled a little bit. Something that you've been hanging your hat on, that you've been banking on, well, it might get disrupted a little bit if you want to say yes. What about religion? Maybe your religion is going to get disrupted when you say yes. Let's talk about that for a moment. The quintessential example of this in the Mary and Joseph story is, is the way that the scripture talks about G, or, uh, Joseph. So in Matthew's gospel, we read uh, that Joseph was a righteous man. Now, that's not a generic sort of vague description. That's a very specific description of a Jewish man in the first century who dots every I and crosses every T on his religious obligation to the Torah, to the law of the Jewish people. So Joseph is a man who's got his religious game in order. He dots every I, he crosses every T, he follows the rules that he's been handed. Here's the problem. When it's found out that his fiance, who he's not been with yet, is pregnant with a child, there's a prescription in the law for what he has to do about that. Now again, Joseph is a righteous man. He lives his life according to the law. But in the law, it says that if a fiance who's not been with her husband yet is found to have been unfaithful to him or found to be pregnant, his responsibility, according to the law, is to, is to bring her forward in front of the elders, have a, a bit of a trial, and then for her to be stoned to death. Now, I know we can spend other days uh, wrestling with the, the cruelty of that, but I'm just telling you, today, th that's what it would look like for Joseph to be a righteous man in this situation. Joseph's religion gets disrupted in this moment, gang. Like, like, he's got a fork in the road. He can either continue to be a righteous man by the religious definition that he's been living with his whole life, or he can say yes to what the Spirit is birthing in Mary's life. He can't have both. This doesn't get talked about enough in religious settings, sometimes saying yes to God will disrupt your religion. Now, it's not just uh, his religion. It's not just his private, personal relationship with God that gets tossed around, though. It's also his reputation. Because it's not just that to be known as a righteous man is to mean that in his private life, he dots every I and crosses every T. It means that in the community, he's known as a good Jewish man, as a good religious man, as a man who does all the right things. But again, for him to keep up with what the Spirit is doing, for him to join Mary in her yes, for God to be born into their lives, is for him to leave that reputation behind. Uh, these are the kind of disruptions that come to all of us if we're going to say yes. Now, you may not actually face a religious uh, disruption. If by that you're thinking of theology and doctrine and dogma, although you might. There might be other kind of religions that are at work in your life. Like all of us inhabit religious environments whether we realize it or not. Your workplace is undoubtedly a religious environment. 
By that I mean there are hierarchies, power structures, ethics, whether spoken or unspoken, value systems, whether spoken or unsystem. Like you live in an environment with a thick code of here's how you belong, here's how you prove to be a good person, here's how you play by the rules. So like maybe the religion that'll get disrupted for you isn't explicitly theological or doctrinal or dogmatic. Maybe it's, it's the hierarchy in the workplace or the family system that you grew up in. But like we all inhabit these worlds with hierarchies and value systems and ethical codes and sometimes to say yes to God is to fly in the face of all that stuff. And not just for your own personal, private, religious world to get disrupted, but your reputation for playing along with that religious world to get disrupted too. And one more thing that we could say about what gets disrupted is maybe it's not just your personal life. Maybe it's not just your religious experience. Maybe it's not just your personal plans. Maybe the big things get disrupted in the system and the way that the world is built. Uh, in Luke, uh, just a few verses after we read about Mary saying yes to God being born in her life, Mary sings a song. Uh, this is sometimes called the Magnificat, which is just the Latin for the first word in this text. But this is how the song goes. Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary seems to believe that for God to be born in her life is for God to, to be so faithful that God's going to actually take the systems and flip them upside down. That some of the status quo arrangements, not just in her personal life, but in the world around her, are going to be affected by God being born in her life. It, for us, it may not just be the, the personal private experiences that we're having that get disrupted. It might be the order of things. Now, with all that disruption, you might be like, well, then who wants it, Right? That's a lot of disruption. That's a lot of stirring the pot. That's a lot of things sort of cracked open, broken apart, right? But I think one of the reasons um, that we read about these stories in Scripture, one of the reasons that God has to say and do these things is that we forget just how, how stale and stifling the status quo is right now. But I, I think most of us, most of the time, we underestimate the risks involved in the current situation and we overestimate the risks involved in the new situation. Right? So like we make peace with the way things are, even if the way things are isn't the way they should be. It's just too easy to settle for the way things are, even if the way things are isn't the way they should be, which is why I think it takes often not just a good idea, not just a little inspiration. It takes like, like a word from God to break in. Something like an angelic visitation, something, something to break in that's beyond us, to break into our lives and to speak to us and to say, hey, like, stop making peace with the status quo. Something better wants to be born right now. It, it might take a, a dramatic disruption, a, a, a dramatic invitation from God to do that kind of thing because we so often make so much peace with the way things are. Now, as, as I've been working through this and like, trying to make sure I have some integrity with this, because I don't ever want to preach sermons that are theoretical for me, I was kind of thinking through, like, have there been places and times in my life where I realized I was being invited into that complicated yes? The yes that brings with it the disruptions, but also that brings with it the, the hope of God 
being born in my life, God birthing God's self in the world in some way, God taking on some flesh in my life. And some of the examples that I've been learning from and wrestling through most recently are actually ones that I feel like are probably not to be shared up here right now. Maybe they're more personal and they're in a stage of development that I think I should probably just let them keep developing the way they are. But that, but that brought me back to another example that's maybe more obvious for us here. Uh, an example of, of, of a complicated and disruptive yes in my life that I, that I realized um, the disruptions were all worth it. And the example I'm referring to is Southland City Church. And I'm not the only one who has a Southland City Church story. This just happens to be my little part of that where this thing that we're doing together here, like I had to have my moment where I decided if I was going to say yes or no to this. Uh, in 2010, I had a dramatic and sort of strange experience with God that doesn't fit my categories because I tend to be kind of analytical and I'm not, I'm not very prone to those kinds of things. And yet this thing happened in 2010 that just sort of shook me up and left me unsettled and made me realize that I was being asked to say yes to something like this. And it took me five years from 2010 to 2015 to go from hearing the invitation to figuring out my yes. Five years it took me to kind of wrestle to the ground. And some of that was, I actually think was like God's timing. And there was a sort of a, a period where that needed to be developed in me before it could work through me. I think some of that was godly timing. And some of that was me sensing all of these disruptions that were gonna be a part of that yes and being a little bit fearful of them, not sure how to prepare myself for them. And I can tell you uh, without a doubt, every disruption I just mentioned, disruption in the body, disruption of my plans, disruption of my reputation, disruption of my religion, all those things have been a part of this experience and I'm not the only one who could tell those stories as a part of this community as we've walked together. But I can also tell you that when I look back on the fork in the road in my life and I think about all the temptations towards safety and security and predictability and how they almost captured me, and then I take stock of my actual life and my actual experience, I'm brought back to that dinner with my friend in New York and his kind of blubbering emotional joy because I feel a similar kind of thing about being a part of this. And I, like, I think about what I learned from all of you and about like, what this season of my life has been like for, for this to be the place where I get to experience God in the flesh more than any place else. And I think if I could go back to the moment before I found my way to that complicated yes, and if I could just say to myself, hey Jay, like, yeah, it will mess your life up a little bit. And you will be so thankful that it did. Because a lot of the attachments and the status quo and the provisional arrangements that you have made for your life aren't as good as the ones that you're gonna be a part of in this new thing. So yeah, it'll disrupt, it will mess things up, you will lose some things in the process, but don't worry. Because what you will gain is a sort of fresh experience of seeing God being born in the world, in, in both my own flesh and in your flesh. And uh, we have like so many of those forks in the road, right? Where we can look and see um, paths towards safety and security or paths toward that vulnerable yes. And um, when the disruptions threaten and make us fearful, don't feel any shame for that. That's just so human and so natural, but there is that good thing on the other side. There's the life that God wants to bear in the world, the love that God wants to pour out into the world, and the unbelievable and beautiful idea that you, you, are one of the vessels through which God wants to pour all of those things. I also know um, in a community like ours that many have been given sort of shaming messages. There's something specific about you that's been leveraged against you to tell you that you are somehow less eligible for this 
And I just got to say, if there's anything that we as a church can do to cast out that demon and call it a lie, we got to keep doing it. Because like the message over and over again in Scripture is that God is not a discriminator among persons. That God finds every kind of person, every kind of person that God has made, every, every beautiful, human, imperfect vessel that God has made, God has um, seemingly desired to pour God's self into and through. And you better not think that you are ruled out from that. Uh, I don't know what the yes will be for you. I don't know what the actual action will be. Uh, for some, I've discovered over the years, the yes means like quitting your job and setting off on a new vocational path. It might mean just picking up the phone and having a new and vulnerable conversation with an old friend. Uh, it might mean uh, booking the flight. Like, book the flight. Get in the car, book the flight. Actually show up. Put your body where your body needs to be for the face-to-face, -to, -face, to, to be in the space where you need to be for that next step. For some, it might mean a new approach to an old relationship. Maybe it's a new approach in your marriage or a new approach in your parenting or a new approach with your parents, but the new approach is going to be vulnerable in a way that the old one wasn't, and that's why you haven't taken it yet. For some, it might mean using your voice on behalf of the new world that wants to be born rather than to continue to defend the world as it is right now. For some, it might mean entering a room that you're afraid of entering, whether literally and physically or metaphorically. For some, it might mean leaving behind an attachment or a behavioral pattern or an addiction that makes you feel safe and secure, but in fact is destroying you or others. I could go on and on about what the yes might look like in our lives, but I, I, I'm pretty certain that if it's God saying that God wants to bear God's own self in your life, it probably involves some disruption and some vulnerability. But on the other side of that, there's some kind of new life waiting, not just for you, but for others. Now, everything I've said about this, about God bearing God's life in the world and the disruptions that come with it and the complicated, vulnerable yes that we have to find our way toward if we're going to be a part of it. The other reason I believe in this so deeply is not just because I see it in Mary's life or because I've experienced some of it in my life, but also because of uh, the moment that's commemorated in the meal that we're about to experience together at the Eucharist. Because Jesus himself actually has a, at least one uh, complicated yes that you can read about in the scripture. One moment where bearing the life of God in the world is going to cost him everything. And what's amazing to me is that we're given access in the Gospels to how fraught that felt for him. We don't get Jesus just gliding his way to the cross, right? We get Jesus wrestling with the invitation, wrestling with his own faithfulness to what he's been called to. So, for example, in Matthew 26, as Jesus is right on the eve of being taken to the cross, where bearing the life of God in the world will cost him his life before he's resurrected, we read uh, this moment. I just, the humanity... Uh, in this moment, I find so compelling. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. This is a garden just outside the old walls of Jerusalem. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. By the way, I'm so compelled by the fact that even Jesus wants to have his friends with him when he faces this hard moment. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. It's not unlike Mary's disposition. He's at a moment in time where he has to decide if he will find his way to that yes again. And he does. We read in that moment about the sorrow, about the kind of harrowing nature of the disruption that he will face as he lays down his life. We read in Hebrews that there is also a joy set before him. 
But somehow, even as he confronted the loss that he was about to encounter, the death that he was about to go through, there was also a joy set before him. And I suspect it's because he knew, knew and continues to know better than I, maybe better than you. He, he knows that on the other side of all those yeses, there is more life being poured out, not just for you, but for the world. And p- perhaps even he had in mind that you and I today, 2,000 years later, would be gathering around this table, fighting ourselves sustained by the love of God, poured out in a dark world, uh, a light shining in a dark place. And so today we're going to come to the Eucharist table and uh, find our peace here at this table, both with God and with one another. And we'll be reminded at this table that as, as Christ was able to find his way to that yes again, to say, not my will but yours, to let this all be poured in him and through him out into the world, that here we are sustained by that meal today. And that, in fact, our lives are being called into the very same pattern, that our lives may become echoes of that very way of being in the world, that God will be pouring God's life in us and through us, and love will be the result. So I'm going to break this bread for us, and I'm going to ask those who are going to serve you to come forward to the stage so I can serve them. And after I've broken the bread and prayed for these elements and served them, uh, they'll go to the tables, and then they'll be there to serve you. But let me remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then later that night at that same meal, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant forged in my blood. This is the cup of an enduring, unending, unquenchable faithfulness of a persistent love that continues to flow in the world and to sustain you and perhaps to flow through you into others. Take and drink. And so loving God, I pray that these elements would be for us, uh, the body and blood of Christ. The gift that Jesus gave when he found his way to say yes again. And as, I, as we uh, come to this meal and we find ourselves nourished, sustained, as we take it into our bodies, I pray that we would remember that we too are called as bearers of God. I pray this meal would sustain us. I pray that it would convert us. I pray that it would encourage us, uh, that it would inspire us, that it would chase away those lies that have told us that we are not a part of the story and it would invite us to say yes, to embrace the disruptions, uh, for the joy set before us, for the love and the life that are on the other side of these decisions. I pray through Christ and we all said, amen. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you. All right. And now together, would you know that this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you?
continue in our time together. Uh, if you're able and willing, would you stand and join us as we sing? Uh, don't forget, next week, the kids will be leading us in worship. Uh, don't forget, we would love to have you host a January 8th table. Please sign up. The more, the merrier. And now a benediction. Uh, may you hear the angel calling. Whether he speaks in quiet whispers or shouts in your bones. And when you realize that God wants to bear some of God's life in you and through you, may you find the bravery to say yes. May you see the disruptions as necessary and beautiful parts of a path to a better world, both for you and for others. And may you find that love and joy are coursing in your life as we, like Mary, say yes. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.